Hello. Welcome to Never Delegate Understanding. I'm Harlan Krumholtz. Today I'll be speaking with Christy Munger, who was diagnosed with stage 2 breast cancer in 2016. At the time, Christy, who was 30, was recently married and, as you might expect, shocked by the news. After chemotherapy, surgery, radiation therapy, and targeted therapy, her treatment ended successfully in 2017. During treatment, Christy created a digital health app to support both patients and their cancer care teams to improve symptom management. She also co-founded and is a board member of the Cold Capital Fund, which provides assistance to patients who want to use scalp cooling devices to prevent hair loss. And she's now program manager for provider education for the Association of Community Cancer Centers. Welcome, Christy. I'm so glad you're joining us today. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. One thing I wanted to just kind of go back and and maybe to the beginning, I mean, you were an ordinary person facing ordinary issues in your lives until until you got this diagnosis. Can you take us back to that and tell us a little bit about what happened and what that was like for you? Sure, yeah. And it's funny because I wouldn't necessarily peg myself as a naturally assertive person, but it was really this whole experience that really helped me find my voice in that. So back in 2016, I was experiencing some GI issues, which isn't that uncommon for me. I'm one of those people who feels everything in their stomach, whether it's stress or sadness or even excitement, but it had been getting worse. And I started to go to the doctor and see some specialists to try to get answers because I was pretty miserable. Um, I was losing lots of weight. I was on what my husband and I called the Labrador retriever diet of like sweet potatoes and chicken. <laughs> I couldn't really, um, hold on to much else. And I got diagnosed with IBS, which is really a catch-all diagnosis when they're not really sure what you have. Um, and no real answers, and I couldn't really get it under control. And I was sort of in the midst of all of that. I think I had just started a new medication a few weeks before. And i that's when I found the lump in my breast. Really, I was just checking to see if I had the same cup size, and I felt a little hard lump in my left breast. I really thought nothing of it. I had heard that cysts and breasts are common. I think my mom has had a few in the past. It was really just a reminder for me that I needed to make my um, annual OBGYN appointment. When I saw my gynecologist and I asked him, hey, I found this weird lump. What do you think about it? And that's when he referred me to get a mammogram. I'm extraordinarily lucky that I had a gynecologist that didn't write it off as just normal cystic breast tissue or fibrous breast tissue, which a lot of gynecologists do. It's, you know, people don't think that women who are premenopausal can get breast cancer. So when women themselves find lumps, oftentimes it's written off. Hmm. So, so this whole thing was about um, you lost some weight and then then you incidentally found this. But yeah, that was something that the person took it seriously. Did 
Did you have a long-term relationship with that doctor? I had been seeing him for a couple of years. It was really just like a 15-minute appointment once a year. So while he knew my history, uh, we didn't have a close relationship or anything. But it was really through that where I really started to trust him, that he really took me seriously. Um, So yeah, and then I went in for a mammogram, which was uh, definitely scary. It wasn't until I got my biopsy that I really started to worry. When they saw the mammogram, they referred you for, for immediately for a biopsy? They did. So they brought me to the back room. They did an ultrasound. And the radiologist's face changed. And I could just tell that he saw something that concerned him. And then I went in a few days later for my biopsy. After the biopsy, which was you know, quite a bit painful and a little traumatic. I was talking with the nurse and I was trying to comfort myself. I, I really like using information to comfort me and settle me. And I asked her, you know, how often do you see uh, masses like this that are benign? Thinking that I could tell myself, you know, Christy, most of this is benign. You really have nothing to worry about. And she told me, you know, let's say it was 85%. 85% of these are benign, but not 85% that look like this. And that's when I really knew um, I was in trouble. But my interaction with this nurse really changed the trajectory of my care. How was that? So she did what, what I now know is called priming the patient, but she really sat me down and talked me through some of the things that I might hear. I'm pretty sure she knew that I had cancer. They just couldn't confirm it until they got the pathology reports back, of course. Um, But she knew sort of what I was in for before I even knew it. So she sat me down and said, look, here are some different ways that this could go. There is a chance that it could be breast cancer, but there's a couple of things that you need to know about it. Most breast cancer is caught really early stage. There's a lot of really good treatments that result in really good outcomes. And she gave me some statistics about, you know, how many women with early stage cancer, um, how they have great survival rates. She walked through some of the terminology I might be hearing. So she said, if you get a call and you do get a diagnosis, you're going to hear some words like ER and PR, which are in reference to hormone receptors for breast cancer, which can fuel cell growth. She also mentioned you might hear the word HER2, which is um, another receptor that's an important um, part of treating breast cancer that some people test positive for. And she said, you know, Christy, don't go and Google this. You might come across some scary results, but I want to tell you, this used to be not a good diagnosis 10 to 20 years ago, but now there are great medications that target those HER2 protein receptors. So I want you to know if you do hear that word and you do Google, please just know that there are really, really effective treatments in place for it. So she spent a lot of time really talking me through some of the words that she thought I might hear so that I could be, I could have the wherewithal to ask questions and sort of understand what I was hearing when I got that diagnosis. It's really interesting that she had that positive effect and your memory of it is so clear. 
sometimes in a circumstance like that, it's, it's hard to even absorb information because you're so anxious. What do you think made that such a positive interaction? Well, and, and you able to absorb that information at a moment where there's naturally a lot of anxiety. Yeah. And, you know, I don't, it wasn't positive in that I was still so scared. And, you know, I went back to the car after that appointment and was hysterically crying to my husband for a while. It was still really hard and it was still traumatic, but I think because she started priming me with the information before we even had answers, it helped me sort of stop and process and prepare. So I think it would have been very different if I was hearing all that terminology and explanations after I heard you have cancer, because that hearing those words is like getting thrown into a brick wall and then getting run over by a truck. Right. And you don't really hear anything that comes after it. So I'm, I'm always grateful to her. Um, I've actually wanted to look her up and send her a note to, you know, express my appreciation because I think it really helped me um, learn about it and be a more engaged member in my healthcare. Wow, that's terrific. So take me to the next step. So she has this meeting with you. You, You've heard this. You've been primed. You're anticipating potential, potentially that you could be getting bad news. So then then what happened? When was the next interaction you had with with the healthcare system? Oh gosh, it it was sort of a flurry of appointments and tests and a lot of it is honestly a blur to me. Um, but the next month basically looked like a lot of MRIs. They did PET scans and bone scans and all sorts of tests. Because I had those GI symptoms, they just wanted to make sure that it hadn't spread elsewhere. And fortunately, it had only spread to a couple of lymph nodes. Um, it wasn't um, an ecstatic, fortunately. Um, so I had a lot of testing and diagnostics. But, but I, how, about, how about when you were told? Did, you know, when, when did you hear that it was cancer? A couple days after my biopsy, the radiologist called me. And, and were you told in person or on the phone? It was over the phone. Um, I think most, most women I know who have been diagnosed with breast cancer have heard over the phone. And it's often an extremely traumatic experience. And everyone sort of describes the chair that they were sitting in at the time. It's just always sort of burned in our brain. Some people can't even sit in that chair ever again. I I know it's just a piece of the journey, but it seems to me to be such a critical moment when this news is being conveyed. And and of course, people hang on to that for a long time. Just to finish this part up about about your care, is there anything that that you wish you had known when you were going through it that, that you know, uh, you know now, but you didn't know then or anything you would have done differently? Oh, you know, I would love to identify the things I wish I had done differently, but honestly, I think we just do the best we can with what we have. Um, and yeah, I, I think it's such an overwhelming time. I really think I just would have gone back and given myself a little bit of grace. Hmm. Um, for, you know, not doing everything perfectly. I think I really struggled with that a lot once I started treatment um, because I really wanted to be a quote unquote good cancer patient. I wanted to eat really healthy. I wanted to keep exercising and moving. 
Um, I wanted to do all the things right so that I would have a good outcome. But I was just so sick that I couldn't do a lot of that. And I beat myself up for it a little bit. So I think if anything, I would go back and give myself a little bit more grace around that. Yeah, because you were the best patient. You were you were active and engaged and asking questions and curious. I mean, I think it's amazing through all this period that you were able to to do that. And and I think that that's something that will inspire others because it, it clearly is is a path that that can help you have better outcomes, I believe. So let's talk a little bit about what you've done since then because you've stayed engaged with the breast cancer community and, and are now very much involved in, in helping other patients. What sparked that in you? It, it sort of led you to a career change, really, right? It did, yeah. So during treatment... As I mentioned, I had a lot of side effects and I basically went from being a triathlete to being bedridden within a few months. Um, And we didn't know how to get them under control. So I started tracking my own symptoms and I would just take 30 seconds at the end of the day, track the severity of my symptoms, and then we turned it into charts that I would bring into my oncologist. And it it really changed the way that my husband and I managed my care at home, but it also changed the dynamic with my oncology team. What, what, what got you starting to think about doing that? You know, there are studies now that, that people tracking symptoms, actually, there's evidence that, that it improves outcomes. But, but what prompted you to do that? Honestly, desperation. Again, I was so sick. I was losing so much weight. I think I was down to like 85 pounds at the time and it was starting to get dire. Um, I was in and out of the ER. I was admitted to the hospital multiple times and we just couldn't make sense of it. So we, I'm sort of a data nerd and I just wanted to understand, okay, can I try to map out you know, when am I experiencing the worst symptoms so I know how to better manage my medications at home? And that's what really started it. Wow. And and so this is what turned into your app, the, this uh, these spreadsheets that you were developing? You thought, can I automate it? Or how did that work? Yeah. So once I saw the impact it had on me, so I got a much better handle on my symptoms once I was able to see the trends. And my doctor's appointments with my oncologist the time was almost cut in half um, and it was more focused on solutions rather than her trying to pull information out of me and my husband. Wait, j- j- just can you give me an example of that? So tell me what happened. Like you would walk in with these spreadsheets and then what? How would it work? Yeah. So I would email them to her like the night before. And she usually, you know, of course, as a doctor, doesn't have that much time to review them beforehand. So I would give her the printouts in our appointment and she would take 30 seconds and glance over the charts. And I I think one of the things she said to me the first time I did it was, wow, I just learned more in 30 seconds of reading through these charts than of 10 minutes of asking you and Jem, my husband, questions. And it didn't replace, you know, what she needed to do in that appointment but it really just focused the conversation. So she would say, okay, we really need to get your nausea, mouth sores, and constipation under control. 
Um, these are the top symptoms that we really need to focus on. It looks like you are really hit hard three days after your infusion. Let's talk about how we need to adjust the medication. So we could spend more time talking about the solutions to those problems rather than me trying to remember in my chemo riddled brain and on like four different antiemetics trying to remember how I felt. Well, that's great. And are people using it? Yeah. So we were in this, this production. App's, this app's called Tello, right? Yeah, so uh, we were in business for about two and a half years. And as you can imagine, there are multiple challenges that come with having a technology startup. So unfortunately, that particular app um, is no longer functional. And I've since moved on to um, a different path of sort of fulfilling that mission. But I really learned a lot along the way. We talked to hundreds of patients hundreds of nurses and physicians and care team members to really understand what are the problems and burdens of symptom management and oncology and what needs to be done to improve this. And, and sort of during this time, um, right when we were about to start the business was around when uh, Dr. Ethan Bash came out with his findings, uh, like you said, that demonstrate how the mere act of tracking your symptoms and having that information go to your care team actually improves outcomes, um, which is incredible. And it outperforms even a lot of the oncology drugs that were approved by the FDA that year. Yeah, it's like you discovered a breakthrough that that, that collection of data that you did turns out to be a very effective therapy. It is. And it's you know, relatively cheap compared to a lot of these drugs, and it's completely non-toxic. <laughs> exactly. Of, right? Yeah. Oh, right. So tell me a little bit about cold capping. This is, you mentioned it before. Uh, what is it? How'd you find out about it? And, and yeah, just give us a little bit of information. Sure. So uh, scalp cooling is the process of actually freezing your hair follicles uh, throughout chemotherapy to prevent the cytotoxic agent, so to prevent the chemo from actually reaching your hair follicles. So the way that chemo works, and again, I'm not a medical professional, so I'll probably botch this, but it targets really rapidly dividing cells. And when you think about the main side effects of chemo um, that really impact people, it's your GI tract, it's um, your nerves. So a lot of people experience neuropathy, like numbing and tingling of the hands and fingers. Um, they get mouth sores, they lose their hair. It's because all of these um, symptoms are the product of rapidly dividing cells. So the chemo is getting to healthy cells too. Um, so what scalp cooling does is it prevents the chemo from actually getting to your hair follicles and can reduce the amount of hair that you lose during chemotherapy. And I found out about it just by chance. My dad, um, somebody who works at his store used it, uh, when they were going through cancer treatment. And when my dad told them that I had been diagnosed, they shared this information with him. And... I honestly didn't really care about losing my hair at first, but when I found out that one of the chemotherapy agents I was going to be on has a small risk of permanent hair loss, that sort of sealed the decision for me. Wow. And, and the other doctors, though, were resistant about this. 
This was early days of cold capping in the States. It's been done in Europe for over 30 years, and it's in most cancer treatment centers there. Uh, but it's pretty new to the U.S. And I think these doctors just weren't um, current with the literature that cold capping is safe and effective. Hmm. Um, so what happens is I held, I had these freezing cold ice caps that were negative 32 degrees Celsius on my head for about eight hours on chemo wow. infusion days. They, they run for 30 minutes before, four hours during, and for four hours after. Um, and it's a big burden on the patient, uh, before there were these FDA cleared devices, but now there are FDA cleared devices. And now I think a lot of doctors are starting to learn about it and nurses are learning about it. And I think people are slowly starting to get on board with it, but it can really make a huge difference in a patient's quality of life. Let me ask you just a few other questions here toward the end. What was the role of breast cancer support groups for you? It was really critical for me because, like I said, I had such an amazing support system. I really couldn't have been luckier. That being said, they didn't meet all of those needs for me in terms of truly, truly being able to put themselves in my shoes and understand what I was going through. They did the absolute best they could, but there's only so far you can go if you haven't been a cancer patient. Um, I think different people in your lives fulfill different roles and the cancer support groups really fill that role of helping me feel less alone, of being able to talk about all the things that were gross and scary and weird that I was going through. We talked about every kind of side effect that we experienced. There were no filters. Um, people talked about their depression. People talked about their constipation. People talked about how it was impacting their sex lives. These aren't things that people feel really comfortable talking about, but with people who are going through the same thing that they are. So they were a huge support for me. And then also being able to be connected with people who are a little bit further along than me so that I could see the light at the end of the tunnel when my life, it didn't feel like anything was ever going to feel good again. Like I would never feel like myself, like my body was totally changed and I would never be able to feel feminine again. And being able to talk with people that were a little bit further along and a little bit further removed from the process gave me hope. You've recently started as program manager for provider education for the Association of Community Cancer Centers. What's that and what drew you to it? What do you hope to accomplish? Yeah, so um, ACCC, so we're a community of multidisciplinary cancer care providers, so across all disease types, ranging from physicians to nurses to financial navigators to social workers to pharmacists, truly the multidisciplinary care team. Um, and we provide a lot of education and advocacy for that group. So what I'm doing right now isn't necessarily patient facing, but it has a huge patient impact because we're creating uh, tools to support oncology care teams with the physical and psychosocial well-being of their patients. So this has been such a good fit for me because I am truly a mission-oriented person and what I want to do is improve the patient experience. And I don't think that 
you know, providers can really improve the patient experience without improving their own experience. They need access to education and resources and the right role models uh, to be able to improve patient care. As we get to the end here, maybe some people listening, I, I think, would naturally have the feeling that, that you're an extraordinary person, that, that you've shown amazing courage and determination in helping to navigate what was a really challenging health situation. What, what would you say to people who think, gosh, she's amazing, but I don't think I could ever do that? <laughs> I mean, I'm really just an ordinary person. I I think if there's one thing to take away from my experience that really anyone can do is something I did in the very beginning is I made a list of my priorities. These are the things that are really important to me. And this is what I want to result from my cancer care. And I brought that to all of my doctors and I made sure that every decision I made aligned with those priorities. And at the end of the day, that's all you really need to do. You just have to be really clear on what's most important to you and make sure that you're sharing that with your care team so that they can engage you in the right decisions. That's terrific. Christy Munger, I can't thank you enough. It's been wonderful to have you on and, and uh, so appreciate the wisdom that you've shared. Thank you so much for having this platform. This is such important work. I really appreciate you. <laughs> thank you. Never Delegate Understanding is hosted by me, Harlan Krumholtz, produced by Daisy Massey and Cesar Caraballo, and edited by Ryan McAvoy at the Yale Broadcast Studio. Follow us on Twitter at, at NDU underscore podcast or email us at neverdelegateunderstanding at gmail.com. Listen for free at Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. We'll have a new episode in two weeks. <laughs>